is any barrier that blocks or slows the free flow of water in rivers or streams above or below ground. Some dams are natural, created as the consequence of mud or rock slides, or by the activities of animals like beavers. Others are human-made, built of many different types of material for many different purposes in many different styles. In general, human-made dams are built to make better use of naturally occurring sources of flowing water. Sometimes that means tapping into the movement of water to generate energy. Sometimes it means diverting some portion of a river to a nearby lake, human-made, natural, or augmented natural, for general human water supply purposes, for drinking, showering, and the like. In some cases, dams are built to alleviate or diminish the threat of flooding for local ecosystems or cities. And in some cases, they're built to allow local populations to reclaim land, to basically remove water from a particular area so the newly exposed dry land can be used for other purposes. Within the context of dams and dam building, a reservoir is the natural, augmented, or completely artificial lake that stores water that has been diverted from a usually nearby stream or river. A floodgate is a giant door built into dams, which allow the folks operating the dam to control its flow, so they can open doors when they want more water to make it through the dam, close the doors when they want to slow or stop that flow, and or when they want to divert more water away from the typical route of the river to fill up a nearby reservoir. And a levee, also called a dike, an embankment, or a flood bank or stop bank, is a typically lower-tech dam-like structure that is essentially just a wall of earth or rock or earth and rock and other supporting material that can guide the course of a river, contain a reservoir, or otherwise help folks get and keep water where they want it to be while preventing the water from going where it would be inconvenient for it to go. Again, many of these types of structures exist in various forms in nature. Natural levees, for instance, can form when mud or rocks pile up, redirecting a river or forming a new lake that didn't exist before. But they're also often built purposefully by human beings who are attempting to organize water resources in a particular region, controlling where flowing water flows, where falling water eventually comes to rest, and so on. As a species, we've been building dams for quite a long time. The earliest dam for which we have historical evidence is in Jawa, in Jordan, and it's been dated to around 3000 BC, so it was in use something like 5,000 years ago. Other ancient civilizations built dams as well, primarily for agricultural purposes, though there's also evidence of dam building periodically serving military purposes, with an upstream army diverting a river in an attempt to drown a downstream army that is hunkered down, unmoving, well-defended, and in the path of the diverted torrent of water. Dam building was especially important for ancient Egyptian kingdoms, as their agricultural capabilities were heavily dependent on the flood cycles of the Nile River and its offshoots and tributaries. An artificial lake 
was dug in the 19th century BC by one such kingdom, and canals nearly 10 miles long, which is about 16 kilometers long, were dug so that the lake would be filled by the Nile when it flooded each year. That lake then became the source of irrigation water for the surrounding area, opening up entirely new agricultural land for the region, a region that was otherwise limited to the vast but also geographically relatively narrow boundaries of the natural Nile floodplain. This lake still exists today. One of the wonders of the ancient world is the Merib Dam in what is today Yemen. This dam was one of many built by the kingdom of Saba from around 2000 BC, though the Merib Dam was built over a thousand years later, sometime in the 8th century BC. Even that far back in human history, this dam was relatively sophisticated in use and technological application. The dam was built to capture water from periodic monsoons that would form in the nearby mountains, pulling the water from this weather event in this regional landform to be used by the city for irrigation purposes. The dam itself was made of packed earth, like a lot of the architecture and infrastructure in the area, though there was also a great deal of stonework involved. The dam included gates and spillways, which allowed the builders to control the flow of water by opening and closing the gates. The dam passed through the hands of several civilizations in the area over the course of thousands of years, and after several upgrades, by around 325 AD, the dam enabled the irrigation of 25,000 acres, which is about 100 square kilometers of farmland. Dams have been used throughout human history by civilizations around the world, not just in what we would today call the Middle East, though these civilizations did have a bit of a head start in this regard, having gotten started with city-style agriculture and the holistic concept of civilization earlier than most other regions. But later, the Romans were famous for their massive and well-built dams, as were the Chinese, the Turkish, the Dutch, and still later, the British. Variations on the standard dam model have been built on every continent except Antarctica, and from the 20th century onward in particular, dams have been built pretty much everywhere, pretty much anywhere there's running water, due to the promise of making more effective use of those water supplies, while also providing the opportunity to generate electricity via hydroelectric power. Some such dams have dramatically changed the lifestyles of local residents, providing vast amounts of clean electricity to people who otherwise would have had to use dirtier sources like coal, and in some cases, providing electricity where it didn't otherwise reliably exist up until that point. The Itaipu Dam, located on the Parana River, on the border between Brazil and Paraguay, was voted one of the wonders of the modern world in the mid-1990s, and as of 2019, was providing around 80 terawatt hours of electricity, a quantity that as of the mid-2000s was enough to supply Paraguay with 93% of the total energy it consumes, and 20% of the energy consumed by Brazil. Building such structures, though, is not without negative consequences. Dam building often divides ecosystems, with separate species evolving in different ways, in the water and riverside land leading up to the dam and beyond the dam, and some creatures are pushed into new areas by the building of and existence of the dam, resulting in issues with invasive species alongside outright extinctions. There are human issues created by the building of such dams as well. 
China's Three Gorges Dam, the world's largest power station in terms of installed capacity, has allowed for better flood control mechanisms, generated massive amounts of clean power, and has increased the Yangtze River's shipping capacity. But it has also led to the destruction of a great many archaeological and cultural artifacts and sites, displaced around 1.3 million people who were in the way of its construction and who were basically forced to move unwillingly by the government, and created a slew of new ecological issues, with huge swaths of ecosystem destroyed or permanently changed for the worse. What I want to talk about today is another diplomatic issue that often emerges when dams are built, and the international upset surrounding a specific dam that's about to be completed in Ethiopia. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from France 24, and it's entitled, It's My Dam, Ethiopians Unite Around Nile River Megaproject. This piece outlines the development of a massive infrastructural project that's been under construction in Ethiopia since 2011. The Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, or GERD, has been built on the Blue Nile River, which is one of the two major tributaries feeding into the main Nile River the other being the White Nile River. But the Blue Nile provides about 80% of the main Nile's water supply during the rainy season, and it begins in Lake Tana in northern Ethiopia, loops south toward Addis Ababa, and then crosses the border into Sudan, where it eventually merges with the White Nile, forming the main Nile River near Khartoum. So this dam has been built on the Blue Nile, about 9 miles, or around 15 kilometers, just east of the border with Sudan. The dam is set to be the largest hydroelectric power plant on the African continent when it's done, and the seventh largest in the world as of 2020. The construction of this dam is symbolically important to many Ethiopian people, as more than half of the country's 110 million citizens don't have electricity, and this dam would generate enough for everyone, along with enough extra capacity, to sell to other countries in the region. So it's meant to electrify local cities, while also enriching the country monetarily. The building of the dam has been so widely celebrated that Ethiopian political, ideological, and ethnic groups that sometimes agree on very little mostly agree that it's a good thing and that they are right to work toward it and invest in it as a collective. And enthusiasm is so high that civil servants contributed one month's worth of salary apiece to help fund the project back in 2011. In mid-June 2020, the Ethiopian Prime Minister's press secretary tweeted a poem that she called Ethiopia Speaks, which included the lines, quote, My mothers seek respite. From years of abject poverty, their sons a bright future, and the right to pursue prosperity. And in January of the same year, Ethiopian Water Minister Seleshi Bekele answered a question at a press conference about whether other countries beside Ethiopia might play a role in the operation of the dam by simply saying, It's my dam. 
This short phrase became a sort of rallying cry, complete with hashtags and t-shirts, for locals celebrating the promise and potential of this project, and the fact that they, as a country, had built this monumental, massive, powerful, impressive thing. Alongside the dam-related boosterism that's taking place within Ethiopia, though, there is dam-related discontent elsewhere in the region. Egypt and Sudan, in particular, both of which are downstream, along the Nile from Ethiopia, are concerned that Ethiopia's new piece of infrastructure could mess with their own, screwing up their agricultural cycles, flooding and or causing drought in new regions, and maybe even screwing up their own river-based infrastructure, like dams. This is no small concern. The Nile is Egypt's only source of water for their farmland, and they have about 100 million people that they have to feed. As a result, Egypt has been fairly ardent in threatening anyone who has ever proposed building dams on the Nile, though some were eventually built regardless, including in Egypt, though none anywhere near the scale of the nearly completed GERD project in Ethiopia. What's more, Egypt is currently facing a water shortage and fears that any change to the status quo including the perhaps 4-7% drop in water volume when Ethiopia begins to fill the reservoir on their dam, could tilt that shortage over the edge into severe drought territory. Sudan, in contrast, has an official line that's a little more favorable toward the dam, perhaps because they expect to benefit substantially from a nearby source of cheap electricity, the dam located just across the border from them. They do worry that their own far smaller dams will be overwhelmed and maybe even damaged or destroyed if water flow between the GERD and their dams isn't coordinated properly, though. Representatives from both downstream nations have also surfaced concerns that Ethiopia has reportedly not always been the most honest of brokers in the past when they've made use of a natural resource at the expense of one of their neighbors. And this concern, perhaps more than any of the numerous other complicating variables here, is what seems to be causing conflict between this trio of countries. The Nile River is a shared, common resource, yet Ethiopia is acting unilaterally in what some of their neighbors see as a self-serving way that may, as a side effect, hurt those other nations, who also rely on that resource. So Ethiopia might harm them not out of malice, but out of a lack of concern and consideration for those consequences. To Egypt in particular, then, but also Sudan to a smaller degree, this big project seems like a prize that could bring their neighbor significant benefits, but at their expense. This is not the first disagreement about the Nile and the use of its water resources. One of the earlier modern disagreements of this kind involved the British, who were negotiating, they claimed, on behalf of their colonies in the Nile River Basin. In 1929, the Anglo-Egyptian Treaty, among other things, granted Egypt an annual water allocation of 48 billion cubic meters of water, and Sudan an annual 4 billion cubic meters. That's out of a then-total yield of about 84 billion cubic meters that ran down the river each year. It also granted Egypt veto power over construction projects on the Nile River or any of its tributaries, 
Egypt is at the tail end of the river, after all, and the logic seemed to have been that because they would suffer the most from too many dams and similar projects on the river, they should get to decide which projects move forward and which don't. In 1959, Egypt and Sudan signed a bilateral agreement, so an agreement that was just between them, that reinforced the provisions of that 1929 treaty, but raised the allocation for both countries, though Egypt still retained rights on the lion's share of the water, about three times as much as Sudan was entitled to. These two treaties are today typically referred to collectively as the Nile Waters Agreement, and they're a big part of why Egypt has traditionally been so pissed off when other countries build or try to build things on the Nile, or a Nile tributary, without their approval, even to the point of threatening to go to war with any country daring to defy their treaty-granted say-so. Upstream countries, though, including Ethiopia, but also countries along the White Nile River, like Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania, have argued that they didn't participate in those discussions, and thus could not have agreed to them. What's more, the original organizer of that first treaty, Britain, doesn't have sway over the region anymore. So the idea that a British treaty signed in the 1920s should be enforced today, allowing Egypt to tell its neighbors how they can go about their business, is ridiculous. Egypt is able to feed its people because of the Nile River, so it's very interested in keeping things fairly status quo. But these other countries aren't trying to build infrastructure just for kicks. They also stand to benefit in terms of food, but also energy and production capacity. If they build river-based infrastructure, that could, in turn, deplete some of the value that Egypt receives from the river. What we have here, then, are competing claims about sovereignty, but in the context of a shared resource that is zero-sum. If Ethiopia uses more water, that is less water for Egypt and Sudan. If Egypt can legally compel Ethiopia not to use more water, though, Egypt arguably benefits at Ethiopia's expense. The same problem in reverse. This ongoing conflict came to a bit of a head in late June 2020, when, after a group of Egyptian hackers knocked out Ethiopia's web presence in retribution for the building of the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, and after some other sabers were rattled on all sides, leaders from Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia held a virtual meeting, chaired by the current chairperson of the African Union, the South African president. The meeting seemed to go decently well, and representatives said about 90% of the issues they wanted to discuss had been worked out, and that they intended to get the remaining issues sorted in the next few weeks. Issues that included how much water will be released by Ethiopia if there are downstream droughts, and how future disagreements between the countries will be resolved. Awkwardly, though, representatives from Egypt and Sudan seemed to think that Ethiopia had agreed to wait on the outcome of those final decisions before beginning to fill the dam, while Ethiopian representatives announced that their plans had not changed and that they still intended to fill the dam in July 2020, no matter what happened with the final batch of negotiations. So the different sides reported different outcomes from this meeting, calling those outcomes into question. Those who were not at the meeting, and maybe even those who were at the meeting, have no idea what to believe. Now, the filling of the dam will not be a quick thing. 
It will take somewhere between 5 and 15 years to completely fill it, with tests and repairs and augmentations being conducted and built at each stage as they slowly scale up to full capacity. Ethiopia is keen to start filling the dam in July of 2020 because July is the beginning of their rainy season, and therefore it's their best opportunity to actually fill it as far as they want to fill it for that first step. Egypt, in particular, though, wants Ethiopia to progress very slowly, filling the dam tiny bit by tiny bit over many years, because then the flow of the Nile will be less likely to diminish substantially enough to cause downstream damage, including in Egypt. Ethiopia, though, has indicated that they are keen to move faster than that, and have repeatedly claimed that even a significant drop in water levels wouldn't be that big a deal. So it'll be a long-term thing, no matter what, a many years thing. But there's disagreement about how much water will be added to the dam's reservoir each of those years. The larger context concern here is that this disagreement could evolve into something larger, with insufficient or flimsy agreements at some point sparking into something a lot more damaging. A regional military conflict or even a more global conflict predicated on the ties that bind these countries to the rest of the world. China, for instance, is not directly invested in this particular dam, but they have invested $1.8 billion to expand Ethiopia's power grid, the full functioning of which is tied to the opening of the dam, and they reportedly gave Ethiopia $652 million in loans in 2017 alone. That's alongside more casual entanglements, like Chinese companies being awarded contracts to help work on the project, to the tune of a little over $150 million as of early 2020. The debt that China expects to be paid back with interest, then, could be threatened by any anti-dam actions taken by Egypt or other regional interests that are upset about their water supply being threatened by this project. China is also a significant source of loans and investments for the Egyptian construction industry, which means they would likely be interested in keeping things relatively peaceful, but could potentially benefit if there are upgrades or repairs to be done, two things that could become more necessary after a conflict, or as a result of a change in the status quo due to a decrease in the amount of water flowing into the area, for instance none of which implies that anything violent will actually happen here, no matter what Ethiopia does next. The Ethiopian government has a lot of domestic weight on their shoulders. That cultural pride that I mentioned earlier is a huge component of this conversation, and the sacrifices made by a great many people play a role in that pressure. So if the government doesn't get this thing started soon, on schedule, they will likely suffer internal consequences, political or otherwise. Anything they can do to maintain that posture and timeline, then, will likely be acceptable. And for those same reasons, they're a lot less inclined, in the immediate future at least, to care as much about the long-term negative consequences with their neighbors, at least compared to the concerns about internal conflict and potential strife that could emerge from some kind of preventable delay. The Ethiopian government, in other words, is very, very focused in keeping their promises to their citizenry, But that does not mean that they will do anything so flagrantly awful 
that Egypt or some other nation nearby will be able to justify going to war with them. There is an incredibly outside chance of that happening. That said, the aforementioned larger context of this situation also includes burgeoning concerns about climate change, worldwide but especially in Horn of Africa region countries, because projections indicate that they are likely to experience some very significant climate shifts in the very near future, and in fact already have, with new heat, drought, and weather extreme records being set at a fairly regular cadence these days. That means the issues of today are being seen not just as the issues of today, but through the lens of amplified near-future consequences. Lowering the level of the Nile by a few percent is by itself a significant thing for a region that is so reliant on that one source of water. But a few years from now, when things are even crazier, the weather even more unpredictable and droughts potentially even more common and extreme, that becomes a very serious concern. And though the benefits for not just Ethiopia, but the whole region are pretty substantial in terms of this dam going online, it's also understandable why Egypt, and to a smaller degree, Sudan, might be flailing around for any rationale they can come up with to keep those larger-scale variables from being tweaked at their expense, putting them in potentially a far worse position a decade from now than they already expect to face. This is... A story that is very fast-moving, and some aspects of it, I expect, will be more or less resolved by the time this episode goes live, but I expect this will be an ongoing issue, one that will hopefully remain peaceful, but which will no doubt involve a lot of diplomatic maneuvering and posturing and negotiating for many years to come, no matter what ends up happening the latter half of 2020. book that I'd like to recommend today is called Lexicon by author Max Berry. This book is a very readable, hard-to-put-down novel that is somewhat suspenseful, but in a very thinky sort of way. The idea is that words and language has a type of power over the brain that if used by people who are experts in language in a very specific manner, can be used in ways that most people are not able to use language, including being able to control people in a somewhat hypnotic way, but not in a way that is absolute and perfectly applicable. And the book follows the narrative of a character who finds herself accidentally stumbling into a community that focuses on language for the purposes of influence. And the rest of the story takes you on a meandering exploration of what that means to be able to influence, to be able to use words in this way, and what a properly motivated individual or group might do if they find themselves with the ability to shape the way people think. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Lexicon by Max Berry. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or by searching for Brain Lenses wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. 
Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.